All right, guys, so let's recap where we've gone so far in this journey. Uh, Friday night, last night, seems like longer ago, but it wasn't, right? Last night, we talked about the idea of the nearness of God. And we kind of introed it by saying the nearness of God begins through the story of a broken family as God sees and provides for his people. If God doesn't see or provide, then what does it matter if he's near, right? And then we built on that this morning, and we said, okay, so beyond that, God's presence is with us, and it reminds us of his nearness. It calls to us on his mission, and it enables us to live in radically different ways. So the nearness of God means that God sees us and provides. It it means that God is always present because that's his name and his character. And because of that, it calls us into something way greater. It's active, not passive, right? And tonight we're going to talk about one more thing. Do you guys know what TED Talks are? Beautiful, smart people. I love it. Sometimes when you ask people, hey, do you know what TED Talks are? And they say, no, I judge them in my head, right? I'm like, oh, stop playing video games. TED Talks are awesome. And one of the top, I think three of all time, is a guy named Simon Sisnick. He talks about how to lead. And he's got one, and it, it, it talks all about the why behind the what. And he uses a really beautiful example. He says... So a lot of companies try to sell you based on the what. It'll look like you're driving down the street and, hey, drink Coke, or we make computers, or, you know, we love to sell you clothes. He says, but really, if you want to sell people in business, or I believe in life, if you want to sell people, talk about the why. So he says, in this beautiful little example he gives, there's a company that says, you know, we believe in quality, we believe in simplicity, we believe in design. We happen to sell computers, right? The why guides the what. They make computers, but the why is bigger than that. It's design and quality oriented. I'm buying Apple products all the time now, you know? (laughs) That's what they sell. We've talked about the what of the nearness of God. What it is in relation to God. What it is in relation to our emotions and feelings. Tonight is all about the why. Why the nearness of God actually matters right here and right now, right? And to do that, we've got to start in Genesis 1. So if you've got a Bible, go there. We're going to be in a lot of texts tonight, um, four specifically. And, you know, this thing that we're doing tonight, I'd probably do in like two talks, but I like you guys. So we're just going to power through and go quick. Okay, sound good? Fantastic. Genesis 1 is God's account of creation, right? If you don't know it, I'm going to really summarize the first little bit of it. It's God creating everything you see. And it's a really beautiful thing because when God created, nothing was there. Everything we make comes from something. When God created, it came from absolutely nothingness. And so it's really cool, man. As he creates, every day he reflects on what he creates. This is built in rhythms of reflection. So he starts with light and darkness and he adds some matter and he adds some water and he adds some fish and he adds some plants. And after every single day, he looks back and he says, you know what? That's really, really good. After every single day, God, who perpetually defines what good is, says, this is a reflection of me, which is really cool. I had a buddy of mine that was talking about this passage once, and he had probably the best description of what it looked like. He said, um, really, God creating the garden before he gets to mankind at the end of chapter 1 is kind of like what parents do when they're about to have a kiddo. We've talked about a lot of baby things this weekend. My bad. It's on my head, right? But, But really... You've been there and I've been there. Like parents work for nine months to get these little cribs ready and these baby rooms ready and they paint 
and they throw parties, and they buy cribs, and they buy all these onesies, right? Some are better than others, right? <laughs> they buy matching onesies for them, and that's just creepy. Um, <laughs> they buy all these onesies, and really what they do for nine months, they wait so that when they have this kid, this room they place the kid in is perfect. That's what God did with creation in us. Let's look at verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 26, <coughs> it says, Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, the only thing. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and the cattle and over all the earth. Let's get down to 31. It says, God saw all that he made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So really what we see at the end of Genesis 1 is this utopia of goodness. That, that you and me, our createdness was the pinnacle of the entire creative process, right? And, and the creative process is just the goodness of God spilling over onto the canvas of creation. That's what happens. And so as he's building and building, he says, this is the best thing I've ever done. I'm going to call it man, and it's going to look like me. It's this really beautiful picture of what he intended in creation. And we see from the text, right in verse 26, that we were meant to reign and rule over. Our created purpose was to reflect God. It was to reflect God as we drew near and ruled over creation. Because he says right there in verse 26 that, hey, our job was to reign over all the creatures. That's why we care about puppies now, right? That's why we care about animals now, except kittens. Ask me about that later. But that's why... <laughs> Not a cat person, man. That's why we care, seriously, though, about animals. God put that in us because our job in creation was to reign, rule, and care for, but more importantly, to reflect God's goodness to those things that we ruled over. As God ruled us lovingly, we were then to rule everything else lovingly. That was the design. That was it. This beautiful picture of God overflowing in every aspect, in every facet, in every relationship that he ever created. The Hebrew um, language has a word for that, and it's called the shalom. It's God's perfect peace. This is a really cool idea when everything comes together and works how God intended it. So I sang in the choir in high school. I was a tenor one, and uh, somebody laughed. Awesome, guys. Appreciate it. Feel confidence here. Um, <laughs> I was a 10 of one. Uh, one of my best friends was a kid named Andrew Meals, right? And Andrew was not a 10 of one, and he really didn't care about choir. I pretended like I didn't, but I loved it, you know? And that's right. Thank you, Rach. Yeah, we sang together. Uh, I pretended like I, I didn't like it, but I really did. And, and we'd go to, like, these competitions, and I, I'm a competitive kid. I wanted to do well. Andrew, on the other hand, didn't care what we did. And we had a guy in the choir, and his name was Bert. And... Bert was an offensive lineman in football that took it because his parents never told him that he was a bad singer, right? This is American Idol, episode one, every day of his life. My friend Andrew convinced Berticus, is what we called the guy, we con he convinced Bert that he had the voice of 10,000 angels, right? And so literally what he would do is he would whisper to Bert during these competitions, sing louder, we need you, Right? So in the middle of these competitions, this monstrosity of a bassoon of a voice would be like, God, <laughs> like, what is happening, right? Um, and then Andrew also had this, he'd sit behind me and he had this like safety pin and he'd stab me in the butt. <laughs> Ow. 
Yeah, right. During competitions, he did not care how we sounded. My point is this. I was in a 50-person choir at a private school, and we were fledgling at best, right? We were good compared to other 50-person small private school choirs. Anyway, I got the opportunity my junior and senior year to sing with um, people that were really, really good in San Antonio. And I remember I went down there, and they were all people that really cared about music, and there's about 110 of us in this choir. And I will never, ever, ever, ever forget the first time I sang with these people. We had a guest conductor come in, and we did this concert thing on the weekend. And, man, let me tell you something. I, I swear to you, the entire first song, I could not sing. It was so miraculous. And I sat there when all these really gifted people started singing, and I thought to myself, this, for the very first time, this is what a choir is supposed to be. That's shalom. When everything's working together for the good of the intended purposes that it was designed for. One writer calls it this. I love this description of it. He says, shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. I think that is a beautiful description of it. This interplay of all things that are good that lead to fulfillment and joy. You know? But, but we all know the story of Genesis, right? Didn't stay that way for very long. Adam and Eve ate a red apple. Not a good idea. Snake talked to them. They realized they were naked, not naked. One's good, one's bad. Talk to your parents. Anyway, they did these things, and they got kicked out, and sin entered the world. It broke it. And all that sin does, by the way, and we're not really going to get into sin much, but all that sin does is it takes the good design of God and it twists it. It makes us God instead of God God. And when we're in charge, things get messed up because we're not as mighty as he is. In the rest of the scripture, outside of Genesis 3, no kidding, the rest of the scripture is God's plan to regain what he created in Genesis 1. Right? That's it. It's his story of him saying, I'm not done with this place yet. I will recapture shalom. I will revive and renew. It's what the gospel's all about. I think that when we talk about religions, um, there's a lot of them out there. And for the most part, religions answer two primary questions, if you think about it. The first one is, they answer the question of why are we here? So somebody sat down one time and said, hey, there's all this stuff in all this place, and I'm sitting here, and I really, really need to know why, you know? We need fulfillment, and you've asked that question. I ask that question all the time. We probably ask that question more than once in our lives when you don't feel fulfilled anymore. Every religion I know of answers that question of purpose for us. The, the second thing it answers every single time is the question of justice. So I think every religious construct, whether it be ours or Mormonism or Hinduism or Buddhism or Muslim, right, Islam, I think all of them answer the purpose question, and then we all look around and see bad things, and we need an answer for why. I see injustice that seemingly doesn't have a cause when it happens to animals and to kids and to tornado victims in Garland, and I need to know why that happened. And religion is our way to answer that in some, in some ways, right? They all do it. So Christianity is no different than that. We give an answer to the problem of purpose, and the problem of injustice, right? Or sin. And it's really cool what God does because the rest of the Bible is God saying, here's my answer. Go to John 1 real quick. Our next text. Um, as we dive into it, the Old Testament is all about God showing himself to a people and pointing towards this text pretty much in John 1. Um, 
It's, if you were anywhere near a church during Christmas, I guarantee you they read this. Uh, it's a pretty popular passage. In John 1, we get the account of Jesus, man, coming to earth. Um, it's pretty simple, it's pretty straightforward, but it's great. So we're going to be in verse 14 real quick, and I'm just going to read a second of it. It says in verse 14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw the glory of God as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's one of the questions I have. What in the world does the nearness of God have to do with the problem of injustice? What does that have to do with it? Why are we talking about injustice in Genesis 1 and recapturing shalom, goodness, design in, in creation, and talking about nearness at the same time? Because here's the deal, man. When it says that Jesus took on flesh and came, the incarnation is the beginning of God's answer for injustice in our world. God chose to answer the problem of sin with nearness. When we talk about flesh, it, it's an interesting word when Jesus came to earth. Um, <laughs> You know, if I'm God, and do you guys ever play that game, the if you're God game? Just me? Awesome. So I play that game, right? I'm just arrogant. If I was God, I would do this differently. You know what I'm talking about? If I was God, I wouldn't let this happen. If I was God, Tony Romo wouldn't break collarbones. These things happen in my world, right? We need an answer for injustice, okay? Anyway, so these things happen. And if I was God, if I was God, you got to come with me. If I was God, and I could do Almost anything I wanted outside of something that didn't make me not God anymore, that went against my character, if I was God and was mighty and powerful and all those omni words that are huge and awesome, if I was God and I could fix the brokenness of the world in one of literally a million ways, why this one? If I was God and the world that I created was really broken, why would I enter into it? You thought about that? Jesus took on flesh and walked into the brokenness of the world. When I was taking a, telling Rach, I was, my wife and I took a road trip, oh, six or eight months ago, and she was sick, you know? Um, and I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's so sad. Were you there for her? No. I, um, I, don't, I don't do sickness well. Like, I don't like sickness or sick people. So when my wife is sick, I'm like, why don't you stay on that side of the apartment, right? And I'll stay on this side. And if you need something, call your mom. You know what I'm saying? Like, we do this. And I found out the other day, uh, a kid walked in to my church and she had a shirt on that says 900. And I said, what's that? Is that just a number you like? And she said, that's the square footage in a volleyball court. And I said, oh, my apartment is 230 feet less than a volleyball court. And she's from Flower Mound. So she looked at me like, my closet's bigger than your apartment. Anyway, so we have 680 square feet of bliss in the design district in Dallas. And when she gets sick, the last thing I want is like her near me, you know? Because I'm like, you are going to infect me. You stay over there. I'll stay over here. And if you need anything, I'll toss it gently, okay? You know? This is crazy to me because when God said, I'm going to fix the brokenness that's much worse than a cold of sin, his answer to this problem, and it could have been so many other things, his answer to this problem was to step inside of it. Uh, one commentator that I like said in a really cool quote, says, God's answer is the incarnation. He himself entered into all that agony. He himself bore all the pain of this world. And that's unimaginable and shattering and even more impressive than the divine power of creating the world in the first place. That's crazy that he would do that. 
the world is broken and God's going to fix it. I always has wanted to. And his answer to fixing it is to step into the brokenness. Have you ever stepped into sorrow? It's not fun. You know? You ever stepped into pain? God's answer to pain was to walk alongside of it. Walk alongside of us in it. That's insane and beautiful and encouraging and all these things that I don't know how to do. When people come to me with problems, the, the first thing I want to do is fix it. The last thing I want to do is just sit with them in pain and say, hey, I'm just here. That's what Jesus did. God fixes the brokenness with the nearness of it. I said here that God's systematic upheaval of brokenness began with Jesus drawing near. It's nuts to me. Man, I would do it another way, you know? How is nearness the answer to sin? <laughs> but it gets better than that. Go to 2 Corinthians. Pretty popular verse. 2 Corinthians 5. One of my favorites, though. I'm going to be in verse 19 and verse 20 for a second. Uh, let me set up the stage, though, for this passage. Again, I'm a huge fan of historical context because it adds depth. And you got to understand what Corinth was like. Corinth was a city, and it was a ship city. A lot of travel in between there. Um, have you guys ever heard old people, or maybe young people, say that, like, this world is so morally, like, terrible? Have you heard that before? Like your grandparents saying, like, this world is so bad, you know? Like every day, yeah. Here's the deal. If, if, if my grandparents, who say that all the time, understood how bad some of the scriptures, like some of the worlds were then, Corinth was an awful, awful city morality-wise. It had about 200,000 people, and at the top of the city was a temple to a Greek god named Aphrodite, right? And literally what would happen with every young girl is you would have to go up there and spend a couple days and... Shippers would go into there, and you'd have to do some not-so-beautiful-God-designed you know, things with other guys just to get citizenship and go back into the city of Corinth. It was a horrible place. It was so bad, the city of Corinth, that first-century historians literally made it a verb that meant moral disparity to Corinthian eyes. Terrible place. Do you know how bad you have to be to like, get your word added to the dictionary when it means badness? way worse than America right now, right? So I'm not saying good or bad on America. I'm just saying that, man, it was pretty horrible then. And that's the culture that Paul's writing to when he writes his book. So when he says things about our role in this chapter, it's no worse than America now, by the way, right? Really big deal. So in verse 19, let's read. It says in verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling, bringing back together um, the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Love this next verse. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. So this text, like, wrecks me every time I read it. If God's in the process of putting the world back together, this verse tells me that his chosen medium to do that is through us. I don't get. Well, through Christ, through us, right? Which is absolutely insane to me. Anybody play sports? Yeah? Anybody ever? Cool, man. So I grew up playing basketball, um, played it a lot, loved playing basketball. And what this is saying is, you guys follow the Dallas Mavericks? I heard some people say no, and I don't know why. You live in Dallas. No, I don't like 
So I love the Mavericks. I love Dirk Nowitzki. My little brother calls Dirk Nowitzki the uh, German Moses because he led us to the promised land, right? We, we under- <laughs> That's right, everybody. We love me some of the sexy German, all right? Love Dirk. Anyway, so we love Dirk in Dallas. And here's what you know about Dallas sports is if they, find, if they can find a way to break your heart, they just will, you know? Um, but here's what we also know about Dallas sports. If you look at the Mavericks over the last five years since they won the championship in that beautiful, beautiful year of 2011, thank you. If you look at that, there's one thing you can't say is that talent got us to the playoffs every year. Every time, we, we've kind of reinvented our team every year. And everybody looks at Dallas and says, yeah, Dirk's good, but he's old. But Rick Carlisle, our coach, has done such an amazing job with his team that's been about a 48, 49-ish win team a year and made the playoffs that he has got to be the very best coach in the league. Okay, so it's kind of the same process. God's saying, hey, I'm going to show my bravado through the people that are broken. And as they see broken people bring life, they'll see how great I am. This is 2 Corinthians 5. And so he says in this verse, I will make my plea through you, my behalf through you. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So I love, I think that the bigger picture here, as we see brokenness and the nearness of Christ in the incarnation, I think that we clearly see that just as Christ drew near to us, we minister through nearness. It's, it's no kidding, it's our role in a broken world begging for redemption. Jesus said, I'm going to draw near, and this is the beginning of the hope. And when I leave, our role is to continue the ministry of nearness like I did, to step into hurt and pain and brokenness, to walk with people most people would give up on. I think the problem that we have as a church, though, is that we don't know what that looks like. I really don't. Um, I think, at, by and large, we, we confuse nearness and incarnational ministry, right? Big word to say nearness. We confuse that with morality, and they're not the same things, you know? So we make our job as a church to tell people when they're in sin and when they're out of sin, and we think that's going to change people's motives, yeah? It's really, really not. Maybe that's not what Jesus called us to do. And if you look at the text, so if you go to verse 20 for me, and we'll get technical for just a second. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though, as, as though God were making an appeal through us. That phrase right there, the making an appeal through us, is a Greek word, parakaleo. It's, it's two words put together, right? Para alongside and kaleo to call. So literally what God is saying is, as you go alongside people, I will call people in. It's a term of intimacy and closeness and endearment, Right? He's very much saying, this is done, this plea, this begging that God is making through Christ's work in our life is done as we draw near to people. Not get on Facebook and rant and rave about how awful this place is without relationship. He's saying, this ministry of nearness is what Jesus did. So let's see what it looks like. Go to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Um... This is the last place we're going to go, I promise. Mark chapter 2 is one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament. Um, because I see myself in Mark chapter 2 a lot. I mean, a whole, whole lot. Mark chapter 2, let me set the stage, is um, about Jesus calling his disciples, which was a big deal. There's a lot of good stuff to read out there and what it meant to be a disciple, but let me say a couple things about it. 
Disciples were like 13 years old, man. They weren't grown men. They were 13 and 14 years old. And when he became a disciple, that was a lifestyle. And it was one that every little Jewish mom wanted for their Jewish boys. A big deal. Most people didn't make the cut. You had to go through three rounds of schooling. And every time after each round, if you weren't good enough, they said, yep, go do what your dad does. Literally. And so we find Jesus calling people that normally wouldn't be called, which you're not going to get into tonight, but it's a huge, awesome, amazing picture of what the gospel does. So when he calls fishermen, they already didn't make the cut. When he calls tax collectors, definitely didn't make the cut. And he goes to him and he says, hey, come be my disciple, which literally meant you can be just like me, which was a huge deal for a rabbi to do. So I'm sure a lot of people looked at him and said, who are you and what are you doing? Do you realize they don't have as much value because we already weeded them out, you know? So let's read for a sec. Verse 14, Matthew chapter 2. As he passed, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. This is the call. And he got up and followed him. Because when a rabbi asked you to follow, that wasn't like, ah, we'll see, you know. That'd be like Tony coming to me and say, Charlie, come practice with the Cowboys. I'd be like, I'm busy today. What about tomorrow? No, right? 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. There were many of them. And they were following him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he, Jesus, one of us, a rabbi, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? So just so we can clear up some things, um, tax collectors are not what you think of now when you read them in scriptures. They're not people that work for the IRS. They make your parents super stressed out around April every year. Um, Tax collectors are really awful people. On the socioeconomic chart of wickedness, right? They were kind of the very bottom. You hear all these jokes about lawyers for us? They were way worse than lawyers, right? They were terrible people. And let me tell you why. Um, In that culture, family was everything because you couldn't make it on your own. We in the West are an individualistic society. And what that means, pretty simply, is that your wants, needs, and desires come before your family's does or any kind of corporate entity. And how I know that is two things, really, we'll point out. One, nobody says, for the most part, hey, you're going to go to Oklahoma State because that's where I went, and that means a lot to us. They say, where do you want to go to college? We see it in marriage, too, right? Uh, for the most part, we don't do marriages where your parents pick out your, your, your spouses for you. You pick because it's all about you and what you want. And that's not bad. It's just a different way to do life. They didn't have that. Family and corporate identity, especially national corporate identity, was literally everything. So to betray that was the worst kind of bad. And if you were a tax collector, you were the worst kind of bad. What you did was you sat at the city gates, and as your people came in, you literally took their money, in this case, for Rome. Rome was oppressing Israel at the time. They were saying, we own you because we're bigger, faster, and stronger than you, and you'll do what we say to do. And what that meant was, you're going to worship the way we want you to sometimes, and if you get out of line, we will literally beat you, and you're going to give us your stuff, like your money. So tax collectors would sit at the city gate, and they would collect money for the person beating up their family in some sense. And then on top of that, they would keep some for themselves and get rich off their own countrymen that had to give money to the people that were oppressing them. Horrible individuals. They had no morals. So when Jesus says to a tax collector, follow me, that like, man, blew the minds of people. And so he's sitting in this place. 
I love this man. He's sitting in this place, and he's eating dinner, which, which was a really intimate thing then. It wasn't like, let's just go through the drive-thru at Wendy's um, and get a number five. It's a couple-hour process. If you've ever been to Europe, especially Italy, they do it like that. You don't get a table for an hour. You get a table for the night, you know? You eat with people you love. And so that's what was happening. He's sitting there eating with sinners and tax collectors. And it breaks those out because there were sinners and then there were tax collectors. And these men of the law that loved their people said, how could Jesus do this? He's betraying, he's betraying all of us. And I get it. I really do. And in verse 16 and 17, you see their response. It says, why is he doing this? 17 and hearing this, Jesus said, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call the sinners. Here's what we get, man. We get these two groups. We get Jesus that's coming along of insights, coming near to people that need him. He's saying, hey, let me do life with you. And then you have people on the outside who maybe had good reasons for it or maybe not, but they just said, hey, how can you hang out with those people? Why I like this chapter is because I was those people for so, so long. I was. And, and, and again, I, I can't blame them. <laughs> You know, because hanging out with people that are messy, that probably don't have morals, is tough to do. It takes a whole lot of compassion and grace and love that I can't find on my own, but Jesus is displaying. And so what we get in our culture, right, is we get like your holy huddle groups. You guys know what that is? You get your group of just the Christian kids, which is beautiful. Don't mishear me here. That is really life-giving sometimes. But I think the nearness of God mandates that we are near with others that are Christian and aren't Christians alike. That's why, personally, I am not a huge fan of, like, the Christian market for anything, like Christian music or Christian movies, not just because usually they're not very good, in my opinion, but because um, we're not going to get into that. I don't want to offend anybody. Kurt Cameron. Um, <laughs> no, but, but really, I, I think that that defeats the purpose of what we're supposed to be. As Christ came into our mess, why are we creating our own world and not ministering in the middle of everybody else's? Actually, there's a really cool quote. I'm going to quote a couple things from this woman. It's a book called Searching for Sunday by Rachel Held Evans. It's beautiful. Um, like her or not, and some people like and some people don't. It's a really cool book about her journey in church. So um, she says this. She says it's about the Pharisees here and then in our world too. She said, because we religious types are really good at building walls and retreating to temples. We're good at making mountains out of our ideologies, obstructions out of our theologies, and hills out of our screwed up Notions of who's in and who's out and who's worthy and who's unworthy. We're good at getting in the way. Perhaps we're afraid that if we move, God might use people and methods we don't approve of. That rules will be broken and theology's questions. Perhaps we're afraid that if we get out of the way, this grace thing might really get out of hand. Really cool idea. She's walking through her own journey in it. And, and, and I love what Jesus does here. He is opposing the way they thought that people found and pursued God. He's saying it's not looking like standing on the steps of the temple and yelling at them that they're not good enough. That's not what it means. That's not how we call people in to faith. Not even a little bit. She actually says again, um, but the gospel doesn't need a coalition devoted to keeping the wrong people out. <laughs> it needs a family of sinners saved by grace committed to the tearing down of the walls throwing open the doors and shouting welcome there's bread and wine you know come and eat with us and talk 
This isn't a kingdom for the worthy, it's a kingdom for the hungry, right? And that's what Jesus was saying. And it starts with a fundamental understanding of nearness that we sit alongside of in the goods and in the bads and they're being like Jesus and they're being like tax collectors. Because that's what Jesus did. Do you know how hard it had to be for Jesus who created goodness, for Jesus who created the design of the world and the people, Jesus who knew nothing but love to sit with these people? Do you you know how hard that must have been? Do you ever sometimes get annoyed with people for being stupid? I'm usually arrogant. Jesus wasn't, you know? (laughs) He sat there. And, and he didn't get angry most times. He loved and he loved well. He got angry at the religious that kept saying, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to shout at people from the outside. And, and it's cool because as this practice of nearness is flushed out over the years, you've seen great examples of Christians doing it. One of my favorites is, um, I, again, love the history. And there was, in the olden times before modern medicine, um, there was plagues, right? And plagues... Very bad news. They just wiped out masses of people. And nobody could explain why. There was one in about 250, I think 6-ish AD, called the Plague of Cyprian. Plague of Cyprian was especially a, a bad one. And literally what it did, at its height, it was about five years, I think. And at its height, it killed, they said, they estimated 5,000 people a day in Rome. 5,000 people a day died. So you got to understand, without modern medicine and without ambulances and without the sterilization that the Western first world brings, right? We have no idea where our food comes from. We think it's a happy chicken on a happy farm because that's what Kroger tells us, right? (laughs) Without sterilization, when people died, it was messy and horrible. Josephus and a couple other people, their historians, wrote about it. And they said things like, hey, during the plague of Cyprian, Rome turned into a tomb. So what would happen, because the population density was so close, you would flee and get away from people during plagues. You would run outside of the city. And they said literally what happened was, if you got sick, if you even started showing symptoms, they would throw you on the street corners with the already dead, and you would lay there and die with rotting corpses. These were plagues. Horrible things. But also during the plague of Cyprian, there are people that write, historians in the same sentences that write about how awful it were that say, but there were these crazy people called Christians, and when everybody ran out of the city, they ran in to take care of the people that were dying. That's what they were known for. The nearness of God in the midst of turmoil. I can't make you better, but I can sit with you while you're suffering. Why? Because that's what Jesus did with me. Every day. And in that sitting, we see the hope that he brings, yeah? That it's not done yet. God's putting the world back together again. Genesis 1 will be here when Christ comes back. And our job, our role as the people of God is to live out the hope of the gospel in a way that's near to people so that they see it as though God were making his appeal through us. I, last year, had the opportunity (laughs) to go to Romania and uh, I taught at a camp out there, and I brought a team, and uh, it's kind of crazy. Romania, if you don't know much about it, is kind of a divided country right now. Um, you have, like in any country, racism, and Romania has a good bit of people that are just regular Romanians, and then they have what they call gypsies. Um, gypsies are not nice people, uh, and so at this conference that we have, this camp that we put on, there were actually these Turkish kids that were gypsy-ish, and 
um, they were known for certain things, right? Like stealing and lying and hurting. Uh, they're also known for being really, really dirty. I mean, like physically. Um, they came from really poor places, squatter-esque environments. So there's these five, six, seven, eight, twelve-year-old Turkish kids showing up that were not nice people, that chose violence over peace most of the time, and we just came to teach and to help, and maybe they will craft out of something, right? And uh, yeah, about two hours in, we realized that I think there were 120 kids there. All the Turkish kids, the 30 or 40 of them, they all had lice, right? Badly. Like to the point where, because there's no sanitation and the parents didn't really care. Like you could see little bugs jumping on their head, you know? I've never had lice, but I had people on the trip with me that had, and they said it is one of the worst things ever. So literally what we did every morning, and I, again, I don't like the sickness, so I, I really didn't do this. I wish I could say that I showed Jesus' love here. But I was like, I got I to gotta study. Um, what I saw my team do was they stepped in, and every morning they picked out lice out of these kids' hair. Just sat there with them. Knowing full well that, do you know how you get lice? Nearness. You know? Literally. There's no other way. It was so sad at one point where when they first get there, we're doing a lice check on every kid now. And there was one shower that we gave them. We washed. We had lice stuff that we bought um, when we were there. And we washed their hair. And there was two or three girls that had never seen a shower before. And they were terrified. Like they were literally scared of the running water from the top of the thing. Right? They would like weep and try to like, and we're like pushing them in the shower, you know, and we didn't know any Turkish or whatever they spoke. It was, it was a fun scene. The nearness of God expressed through the hope of the gospel looks a lot of different ways. But it really over and over again looks like us sitting in the middle of other people's pain, sorrow, goodness, badness. Um, I think kind of the big point that we're getting to is the incarnation makes it clear. <laughs> we, we cannot stand and yell morality from the outside. We must speak life from the inside as we draw near. Today is the why of nearness. Why does it matter? Because it's the model of how we do life as we follow Christ. And you know what that means? That means that most of the time, you're going to be freaking uncomfortable. You know? We always picture nearness like, oh yeah, I know nearness. It's the comfy chair at Starbucks with somebody I moderately don't like. You know? Man, sometimes it is and that's beautiful. And this extends well beyond just non-Christian people, right? There are beautiful Jesus followers in this world that I have a hard time with sometimes. My family would be a lot of those. <laughs> what does nearness mean for those people too? What does it mean to sit in, to walk with? If nearness was more than just God's position or posture towards me, if it really was the ministry that we're placed here to give the world as we look forward to the hope of God restoring shalom, if if that's what it is, where do I need to show that presence, that nearness in my life? To whom do I show it? How often? I told you this morning that I don't answer questions like this for you. That's your job. I just ask them because you're way better at applying it for you than I am for you. I think if we understand nearness, it completely changes the way that we see our world and see people and see our role in the world with people as followers of Christ. It wrecks it. And while gathering on Sunday mornings is fantastic, and gathering at events like this is phenomenal because it encourages and it grows, our job can be to stand on platforms and say God is good and you need God. That's part of it. Don't ever mishear me. That's part of it. But it's bigger, it's deeper, it's richer, it's more fulfilling than that. It's harder than that. And if you ever need to be reminded what it looks like, please, please, please just look at Jesus taking on flesh and coming. 
study and recognize how difficult that must have been, how beautiful that was when he had a bunch of other options, and be hopeful. So I wanted to end today with one last quote um, that I really liked. It's from that woman again in the book. It's really good. Um, So I'm just going to quote this and I'll pray it out for us. But it says, we could not become like God. So God became like us. God showed us how to heal instead of kill, how to mend instead of destroy, how to love instead of hate, how to live instead of long for more. When we nailed God to a tree, God forgave. And when we buried God in the ground, God got up. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful um, that you came. I'm thankful that you're near. I'm really thankful that through your nearness, we not only get comforted, but we get a model for how we minister the hope of the gospel in our world. Spirit, give us a compassion for the nearness of others. Give us an over and above grace that happens only because we have been given grace from you. Give us an over and above love that happens only from knowing the riches and the depths of your love that we might love way beyond how we've been loved. God, I pray that we just have a passion for nearness. That we love people well and in that, man, you are making a beautiful plea for all things good. That people might see the beauty of your plan and design and shalom and say that is my hope as we see more of Jesus lived out in our world. In his name I pray, amen.